Hey there, it's Lisa from the Culinary Chronicles podcast. On this show, I will interview people from all walks of life about their food experiences of culinary journey. Food, feeding my loved ones, sharing meals, and the conversations and love that fill the table are what this podcast is all about. My father was a butcher, my uncle a baker, and my grandmother's after-school snacks were always a delightful Sicilian treat. I've always celebrated with food and found gathering around a table the most amazing feeling in the world. Culinary Chronicles is my way of sharing this love of food with you. I hope this podcast fills your cup with entertaining tales about the love of food. Hi, and welcome to the show. My guest today is Tammy Hierman. Did I say that right? You did. Tammy has a, an amazing career and life story to share with us today. And let's get started. Tell me a little bit about yourself, your work, your passions. Tell me everything in a nutshell. Absolutely. In a nutshell. <laughs> I, well, you know, yeah. take as much time as you need. So I've spent the past almost 25 years in the leadership development space. And so working with organizations to really help them develop better leaders, if you will. And about, I don't know, just over 10 years ago, I started doing this work with and for women specifically. And it was kind of, you know, forced upon me at the time. I got into the work. I developed a real passion for it, for the conversations, for helping women kind of think about themselves and their potential a little bit differently. So that's really what I'm focused on now. And then outside of work, anything that has to do with my senses. So I have a very heightened sense of smell and taste. And I love walking through stores and just or anywhere really and taking in the colors. I love to cook. I love to dabble in interior design. I love to help people shop when they're looking for outfits or the perfect dress or whatever it may be. So that's kind of what I, I do on the side to, to keep my creative uh, juices flowing. Amazing. I love that. I love the, the scent thing because I feel like I have such a heightened sense of smell too. And people are like, I'm like, I could smell that like from so much further than anyone else. And I feel like that's such a a thing that could be a blessing or a curse. Well, yeah, well, that's just it. <laughs> My first career going into elevators, I'd be like, I can't breathe. All the cologne in the mornings was just so <laughs> overpowering. But that's amazing. And tell me, how did you transition from working in the corporate world to running your own, you know, practice or consultancy per se? Tell us how that happened. Huh. So I I started off kind of working inside organizations in the financial services and tech sector, and, and that was fun. And then I thought, oh, I, I really want to get kind of a broader base of learning from multiple companies. And so I had the opportunity to move then into consulting and worked for a global consulting firm for almost 13 years. And and again, I wanted learning and I got it. It's like drinking from a firehouse in in a large consulting firm like that. And it was fun and it was good for my brain and it was exhausting too as I spent many, many um, hours on planes and traveling and whatnot. And there, just, there came a time where I said, what, what else have I not done? So I've worked inside, I've worked in consulting. I haven't done the entrepreneurial thing. I haven't worked for myself. And the timing was right. And so I, I left that organization and really was able to then focus 100% of my time on the advancement of women. Because of course, when you're in a senior leadership role and you're in a large organization, your time is divided amongst many things. And, and I just wanted the chance to focus exclusively on working with, with and for women. So that's Amazing. what I'm doing now. And, yeah. And, and it's great. You have a book. We're going to talk about your book. But mm -hmm. I think what, like, 
from when I started in my career to now, what changes have you seen? Because like, I know it's really sad to even say this, but women have come a long way in their career trajectory and the way, you know, organizations have operated. So what have you seen in the last 20 years in the change for working women? Tough question, because my my first gut reaction is like, nothing. And it's... <laughs> And of course, me too, sometimes. (laughs) I know, right? And nothing could be further from the truth, of course. But when you're steeped in this work and you watch the numbers of, you know, women in in senior leadership positions or on boards or running countries or whatever it may be, the numbers go up and then they go down and then they go up and then down. But they pretty much stayed pretty stable at, you know, 25, let's call it percent, depending on where you are in the world. And so when you're steeped in that, it's kind of like, oh, but of course, a lot has changed. And in fact, 2022, actually, dictionary.com named woman as the word of the year. And oh. that, so that's kind of cool, right? And how that came about with during the, what is it, Katani Brown Jackson, her swearing in ceremony, she was asked by a congresswoman to define the word woman. And after that, people were like Googling uh, the definition. But of course, if we just even look at, at some of the things that happened last year, whether it was with pay equity, the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team winning a $24 million lawsuit for pay equity. Here in Canada, we're starting professional women's soccer league, whether it's for the first time, Fortune 500 companies have 10% run by women. Now, again, that's a small number, but in the history of them tracking that, it's the first time we've at double digits. Protests around the world when Masa Amini was, you know, killed at the hands of the morality police and how it's brought this this global fight for justice again to the fore. And so I mentioned these things because what has changed, what I've seen change, is we now talk about things. The, the women's equality movement is louder than it's ever been. It started kind of in the 60s and 70s, but now you can't open a single feed, whether it's social media or news feeds or the, on TV, about something about women's equality. And so I've seen that we are now talking about things. Menopause. We're talking about menopause at work. That, yes. that didn't happen 20 years ago, right? Oh so gosh, yes. it's, I think the dialogue has changed. So while we're not seeing kind of the macro numbers change, so much has changed in terms of the things that we're willing to talk about, make decisions about and fight for. Amazing. So that's good. <laughs> yes. I love the menopause discussion. And we have a chat group with girlfriends from our elementary school and the symptoms of menopause that have never been spoken of are hilarious, like, hilarious, awful, but still hilarious. Like the dry ears and stuff that I'm like, oh, is that why I'm maybe feeling these like symptoms? So dry ears. I love, okay. That one I've never heard of. Yes. And I, I think I'm perimenopausal, but I'm like, I feel like I have dry ears and I didn't know why. And then my girlfriend who's also called Lisa, she's like, that's a symptom of menopause. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, no, good. Another so, one. Great. Great. <laughs> so you're coaching leaders. You're talking to women. You're traveling across Canada and the U.S. What are the qualities you see over and over again in female leaders? Like, what do they possess that you're like, that person's got it. Like, we need more of these people. Yeah. So I always like to say to organizations, like, I I want to and need to and believe that leadership is gender agnostic. Like we have to believe in our hearts that anyone can be a leader, anyone can have leadership qualities and on and on and on. So I'll just start with that kind of disclaimer. And of course, I've observed and research has shown that 
women tend to more than men, uh, for example, have, you know, stronger empathy. And I actually wrote a piece on this. And oftentimes we're penalized for that empathy in terms of during the pandemic, for example. I mean, you only have to look at Jacinda Ardern is in the news now, Prime Minister of New Zealand resigning, but how she tackled uh, that the beginning of the pandemic with this sense of empathy. Like we see that in in women more so than men, but oftentimes we're penalized for that because it's seen as motherly or, of course, you're the woman, so you take care of that. And instead, we need to see that as a critical leadership skill, especially today as we're fighting, you know, talent wars and people voting with their feet and leaving organizations. And so I think that's a really strong place that, that women can start to say this is a strategic skill. It's crisis management. It is talent development. It is all those things. So that's kind of one example. Influencing talent de development, gaining followership, all of those things tend to be quite strong in women. And I, my hope is that we now get the rewards for having those skills because before, really in the past, it's more about, you know, what results are you getting? You know, we're talking about what's the PNL, what's the PNL, what projects are you leading, what's the strategic piece? And all of that is important. And we need the other piece to come to the fore as well. The soft skills, yeah. yeah. Amazing. So you talk about emotional salience, and I just, just love that term. Can you explain more about what that is? Yeah, so emotions are really important in learning. I mean, just think about when you look back on, on your career and the things that you remember the most are probably either really positive moments or when things kind of didn't go well. And so this connection between salience, how much we commit to memory and how much we remember is linked to learning, of course, and, and we learn from those moments. But what I do, and I think what makes my programs and my speeches and kind of how I work with, with organizations different is I build that emotional salience into your everyday workshop, into a keynote speech. And so what that looks like is I really focus on two things. One is having experiences, learning activities that bring up and deal with those emotions. And the other one is before you can tackle any skill set, I focus on mindset first. So what does that mean? Okay, let's say we're doing a, a workshop on networking skills. Let's pick that. And someone might say, oh, I hate networking. I hate small talk. You know, I don't think I have anything to add. I think people are judging me. I don't know what to, to say. I, don't, I have nothing of value to offer. I just, I don't like it. It's not for me. I'm introverted. I hate it. I hear that a lot. But, and so there's a lot of emotions behind that. And so if I just ignore that and we teach a workshop on here's how to create your networking list, here's how to shake hands when you go into a big room, like those people are not even going to, like they'll just like go through the motions and leave the workshop and do nothing different. And so dealing with the emotions behind it and tackling the mindset we're telling ourselves is so critical before you can even get into any of those other things. So let's deal with do you really not have anything of value to offer your network? I know you do. So let's talk about that. What does small talk look like for the introverted person? What, so that's kind of what I mean by emotional salience is how do we harness emotions to commit things to memory, but to also have those reframes that we need to do something different. Amazing. And you're right, because I've, I've invited a few females that I admire, have amazing careers, amazing stories. And they're like, oh, you don't want me on my on your podcast I'm boring I have nothing to tell I'm like what are you talking about like you've traveled the world you've worked on the most amazing and 
I'm not sure what to say to them because I'm like, I disagree, but I guess it has to come from within that they have to say, yes, okay, I I do have something to share with the world and, and I would love for them to come on. So if you're listening, you know who you are, <laughs> you better book a time to come on this podcast. So tell us about your book. I've, you know, I've always wanted to write a book. Tell us about like the journey of writing the book. How did you come about the topic? And also like, what is your book all about? I loved it. I read it so quickly. I passed it on to my friend, Angela, who's also has been interviewed for this show. So yeah, tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a copy here because I love the, the cover so much. So it's called Reframe Your Story. And again, that gets all into the mindset work that I just talked about. Real talk for women who want to let go, do less, and be more together. And I love, I love the tagline of we're doing that. it together. But how it came about was, so when I was working in a big consulting firm, I was surrounded by thought leaders, by two New York Times bestselling authors. So I got to kind of be mentored by people who had been through the journey of researching, speaking on big stages, writing multiple books. Uh, and so I got to dabble in, you know, writing blogs, speaking, doing some research. I got to dabble in all of that with the support of some mentors. And there was one particular woman who said to me, you have so much to share with the world. Like all this work, I've literally worked with thousands of women from around the world. Like you, you have such nuggets and insights to share. She was like, you owe it. And if this is your passion, you, you do this. it. <laughs> and as it happened, I, I can write well. I don't enjoy the process of writing. Uh, I wouldn't call myself a writer, but I can do it well. And so when I left and I kind of had the time then on my own, I just tackled it. And it did take me a few years. It was over the pandemic. It took longer than I anticipated. And I think why that is, is, well, one, I hadn't done it before, but to the topic. I mean, when you're writing such a book about leadership and you're reliving all your own struggles, oh, your phone, good experiences, bad experiences, what shaped you? Why do you believe the things you believe? What happened in your childhood? I mean, it was really, really emotionally yeah. exhausting, right? Not just intellectually exhausting. And so it, it took a while, but I worked with a publishing company and an editor and all that and we got through it. But what it's about is the seven common toxic stories that women tend to tell themselves and why. And it's not our fault. Society is only too happy to perpetuate these stories for us. And so then it's like, well, what do you do about it? So it's chock full of stories and research and tips and activities. And someone described it as a warm hug combined with a kick in the pants. So it's kind of like. That's exactly it. It's exactly <laughs> like, oh, yes, I do this. Okay. I need to do this now. Okay. Yeah, it's a great book. We'll add the link in the show notes and, you know, spread the word. And it's such a great, easy read. And you're right. And you bring up so many things that you're like, oh, yeah, that happened when I was younger. And I witnessed that as a child. And yeah, you have to change your own story, which I love. So you host workshops across Canada and the U.S. What happens at a workshop? Because everyone is not privy to these workshops. I've been lucky through some female networking groups that I've done some similar workshops, not like yours, but you leave after two or three hours and you're like, oh my God, that was amazing. For someone who's listening that's not part of, you know, a big consulting firm that can go on these trainings or what do you do in a workshop or how does it work? Yeah. So we decide on the content together as an organization. So, you know, I mentioned whether it's learning to network whether it's mastering your mindset, I love doing workshops on that. How do we become aware of those voices? What do we do about them? You know, imposter syndrome, all that kind of good stuff. So there's content that we decide on. But then the biggest outcome that women tell me that they get is a feeling of I'm not alone. 
I'm not crazy having these thoughts. Like it's not yeah. just me. That they have a strong, supportive network that they hadn't tapped into before. So they really feel surrounded in a good way. And then again, that there's a space to really kind of reflect and go deep and talk about it in a safe environment, whatever the content is. And so it's interesting because oftentimes a lot of the content that I use is gender agnostic. And in fact, in one organization, I ran the exact same workshops at their request. First, with all women in the room and then all men in the room. And then we brought them all together at the end. And at first I was like, oh my God, what are we doing? Like, how's this going to work? I was, yeah. The workshops, even though the content was the same, it was vastly different. The feeling in the room, the conversations that would happen, it was very much more kind of a little more academic in the men's room. You know, let's just get through the activities, let's have some learning and kind of go home. Whereas for women, it was just processing, processing that I could bring in the gender research around. Well, here's why you might be thinking that, you know, because this is how we were socialized differently than men. So it was completely different, the feeling. And then when we brought the groups together, we were really able to say, okay, here's the learnings. What do we know about kind of emotional intelligence and gender research? And why did we even do this to begin with? So it was a really interesting project. I love that. That's so fun. The Lactation Cookie Company was born from my challenges with breastfeeding, an experience had by so many new moms around the world. As a bakery owner, I set out to create a great tasting cookie that contained whole fruit ingredients and galactagogues like flax, brewer's yeast, and rolled oats, which all helped promote milk supply. Once the recipe was finalized, I knew I had to share this delicious and useful treat with as many breastfeeding moms as possible. What makes me most excited is that with every box sold, a donation will be made to La Leche League in Canada and the USA to support breastfeeding education in North America. Cookies come in delicious chocolate chip with regular gluten-free and plant-based options available. The Lactation Cookie Company products are available to purchase on Amazon or via our own website, thelactationcookiecompany.com. And now we're going to talk about food because this is a, you know, Culinary Chronicles podcast. You love to cook and I'm close by. You can always invite me <laughs> over to taste test and uh, tell us, like, what was it like growing up in your house in terms of food? I know you're married to a German German fellow. Tell us about your food journey. Yeah, and so my friends would describe me as a foodie and probably the best home cook that, that they know, which is kind of exciting. And so when right. I thought about how did that happen? So I grew up in the prairies in Saskatchewan, and my dad was a farmer and a mechanic, and my mom a homemaker. She stayed at home, and we come from a Ukrainian-slash-Polish background. And so everything was, you know, grown in the garden, canned, frozen, homemade. Like, I would just die for a pizza pop. I'm like, please, can I have something processed? I just want canned ravioli once a week. All that was the treat when we went <laughs> camping, right? Pop-tarts and canned ravioli. Because we never got that. And so how lucky was I? And so my food journey growing up was a lot of soups and stews and pierogies. My mom's best pierogies and cabbage rolls and all those kinds of things. And so while I didn't grow up tasting, you know, a lot of other cuisines, because where we lived at the time, 
there wasn't, there, you couldn't find a sushi restaurant there if, if you tried. You could find like other world cuisines where we lived at the time. But I ate everything because, of course, when even we talk to chefs now and they talk about using the whole animal or not having anything go to waste. I mean, my palate, as I look back now, while it felt very Eastern European, it was expansive in terms of how we used and dealt with food. And so, I always had this openness to try anything. Like even today, I'm like, I won't eat monkey brain or brain or any brain. (laughs) But that's pretty much about it. You know, I will try anything. And so that that's kind of cool. And then as I traveled, I always had a love of kind of wanting to break out, see the world, work in different places in the world, travel the world. I was very open to trying food. And so it just kind of became quite a passion of mine to experience different flavors. And what's your go-to meal for your daughter and your husband? Oh my God. Okay. So here's the thing. Or is there no go-to? No. no. (laughs) So my husband is also very expansive with his food palate. So we'll eat everything. My daughter is not. And it's like, how did we have a kid that is, you know, your basic North American pizza chicken finger kind of thing. So when she's off doing her own with her, she's a dance, you know, then I cook us something a bit more adventurous. So, so do you make any traditional German fare? Yes. So Thomas and my daughter together, they'll make spätzle, which is a noodle, you know, schnitzel, a moltaschen, which is kind of like a ravioli filled with meats and spinach. And, and so they will make some delicious German things together. And she does enjoy that. But again, it's a very bland flavor. So I'm just trying to introduce her to more exotic flavors. Maybe she'll slowly. grow out of that. She's a teenager, right? So, so she yes. might, she might, yeah, get you know the finer taste. <laughs> <laughs> and you just came back from Barcelona. What was the most delicious thing you had there? What was the most? Boy, I'm such a. I mean, I'm such a sucker for good bread. I mean, having lived in Europe, married to a European. And it's really hard to find that level of bread here. <laughs> even in Toronto, right? You can, but you got to search for it. And so even just the thin, crispy bread they have with the, the but they rub the tomato on it. It sounds oh, so yeah. simple, you know, drizzle in olive oil and sea salt. It is just spectacular because of the ingredients, right? So we taste tested that everywhere we went. Of course, paella, we had some great paella different tapas the olives i've come to believe that spanish olive oil and olives are better than italian or greek and i'm sorry folks but honestly in this last trip i i have to make that statement (laughs) that could cause some controversy i I think olive oil from anywhere is really good because the climate to produce olives is usually somewhere hot and warm and dry and yeah so yeah Oh my gosh. And now what's your favorite meal? Have you, do you have a favorite restaurant in the city or when you travel like in New York or anywhere that you kind of have had a memorable meal? Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Cicero Lee. And so when he started many years ago with his first multi-course tasting menus, we'd have extravagant dinners there. And I would love anything that he would make. He really got the balance of flavors. He's, you know, a true artist. But when I think of kind of my favorite meal, because you're right, I've eaten everywhere and so many things. For some reason, it comes back on my honeymoon. I was 
in Budapest with, with Thomas, my husband, and I was five months pregnant because we got married later in life. And so we got, got going on the family creation pretty quick after we tied the knot. And so I was in Budapest five months pregnant and we said, okay, we're going to have one amazing, you know, hope couture meal. And I remember sitting in this beautiful restaurant. I don't remember the name, but I ordered this white fish and on the side in a little, you know, saucier container to pour myself, there was this amazing aromatic sauce that had honey and cinnamon and it was just so unexpected paired with the fish and it was just out of this world and I think I have a heightened sense of smell already but then when you're pregnant of course that's on on steroids and so I just remember that smell and it's just stuck with me 16 years that meal sticks with me I love that oh do you remember the name of that restaurant I don't I don't remember I don't even know if it'd still be open all these many years later yeah Oh my goodness. And dinner parties. You say you love to host dinner parties and cook for friends and family. If you could host an elaborate dinner party, would you cook for yourself? Would you cater it? Like who would you get to cater it? And who would you invite? I mean, you can give me all the different scenarios because I know you have a lot of uh, thoughts on this, I'm sure. Oh, I don't, in terms of like guest list, I don't even, I hate the question of what famous people would you put together? Like, I don't know, right? But what I do know is, so I became during the pandemic obsessed with um, Otto Lang. Do you know? He, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. so God is cookbooks. And so he's for you, I guess he's an Israeli born British chef who does actually quite complex things. So I had to start ordering ingredients from the internet. Of course, now we have a ton of Turkish and Middle Eastern recipes. The stores kind of pop up now here that I can find the ingredients, but he does this fresh flavors in a way that, that I just become obsessed with. And so my dinner party would be in the summer when it's hot out, either, you know, in my backyard or in the cottage maybe. And if I couldn't get him to come and cater, then I would make some of the things myself. Um, but what I learned from him is if you give me fresh summer produce, herbs. I, my backyard in the summer is filled with every herb you can imagine. And cheese, some lemons, I can make spectacular things. So I remember we were about to go on vacation last summer and uh, my husband, and he kind of like to whittle down the fridge. And so my husband opened it and he said, God, the fridge is empty. And I looked at it and I'm like, God, it's still so full. Like we have to eat the stiff before, before we go. And within an hour, I think I did an Instagram post on this. I had no idea tomato, watermelon, kind of mint feta salad. I had made zucchini ribbons, quick sauteed, some fresh herbs and goat cheese. I had made, I pulled out some quick frozen shrimp and I did some tarragon, you know, lemon something. And, and then, oh, uh, a raw zucchini salad that I made ribbons out of. And I quickly made some fresh pesto with the basil I had. And in an hour, I had this incredible array of fresh, delicious. Thomas is like, where did all this food come? Where did this come from? I cracked that a bottle of rosé and I was like, yeah. that but, sounds amazing. Yeah, but you know my favorite thing, and both Thomas and I say this is one of our two dishes. Like, what would you eat before you die if you're on death row or whatever that question? Right. Jamie Oliver has a recipe for halloumi peach skewers that is to die for. You grill yeah, them and there's I've a fresh parsley salad on top. Honestly, we make it in the summer so many times. My daughter's there's again, but peaches are only peaches for like six weeks here. But then this was a Bon Appetit uh, recipe from ages ago. 
We still make it all the time. So fresh figs, which luckily are quite easy to find in Toronto, put a little split and stuff them with gorgonzola or your favorite blue cheese, wrap it in prosciutto and grill it for literally two minutes, like to die for. So those are the two things that we would have to eat before we die. Okay. I'm coming over. I'm coming coming over in July. (laughs) Yes. I'll be knocking on your door. I'll be like, I have some fresh basil and thyme and herbs from my garden so we can share. And yet to take a step back, Odalengi was probably one of the inspirations for me when I started my bakery because he had a little shop in Notting Hill, which he still does. And the way he displayed, I don't know if you've been to that one. It's no, before there. I die, I have to go to okay. one of his places. Oh my gosh. So the way he displays his food is unlike you will ever see. And unlike I had ever seen, I was in my 20s and I walked in and he has this beautiful white marble like counter that just goes for you know 10 12 maybe 20 feet and he has bowls of like his couscous and his you know salads and his mediterranean dips and herbs and it's all just there and you could just ladle it yourself in from these giant beautiful like ceramic artist artisanal bowls and then as you move along the counter he has the most amazing as you know from his cookbook these desserts giant like meringues and lemon tarts and all just sitting on these plates like you would just find out of the, your grandmother's cupboards all these different mismatched plates and pots and you just kind of help yourself and that was unheard of back then and so is now because of you know seas guards and health and safety and it was just you just walk in and you just like your eyes are just it's like a museum and your eyes just taking the beauty of all of his beautiful dishes and then you kind of bring everything to the counter and you're just You've slid down this beautiful white marble like parade of food. And it's exactly like the cookbook. So the stuff that's made in the in that little shop is just your eyes have a feast and it's so you have to get that. there. It's such a beautiful So I remember saying when I have my own bakery, I want it to just be, you know, a white counter with all the cakes on different tiers and trays. And that's how I mimicked my first shop, I put everything out on tour. And obviously in Canada, it gets hot or cold. So you have to kind of put it into a fridge. But it was that beautiful styling that, you know, I had never seen before. And I'm such you a probably fan. won't really see in yeah. many places. You're reminding me. So one of my tricks to get my teenage daughter out of her bedroom to eat, you know, usually it's like afternoon. So brunch, we'll call it. My husband was quickly making French toast. And I thought, oh, French toast. Great. But and I saw I've got some mint. This was the summer again. And I quickly, in the time he made the French toast, I quickly put together a fruit salad, macerated it with some lime and honey and mint. And then I quickly toasted That's some good. coconut on just on the stove in a pan. And then I made some quick whipped cream. Again, I put a little lime zest and this and that. And I plated it so beautifully with the toasted coconut. And I took a picture and I sent it to her up in her room. And, I, and she's, she's like, like, I'm coming. <laughs> Can you make me Yeah. So just red, to hear like down. yeah eyes like I told you I'm so visual too is just oh I love that I love and that. I have a thing with I don't know you probably do like going into a space and feeling the vibe and that makes me want to either eat there or not and even the plating and the the setting it's such a like visceral feeling when you're like oh my god the decor and the pillows and the lighting and the just even the way the menu looks and feels. I feel that that's, it's such a skill to have all those tiny details that mesh into one experience. Because eating at a restaurant is about experience. 
it's about the food, but it's about, you know, once you walk in, who greets you, who looks at you, who talks to you, the tablecloth, like all of that. And I feel that some people don't see that or feel that, or they just take it in without even knowing, because you can right. walk into a place and you're like, oh, I'm like, look at the flowers, look at the chef and look at yeah. the aprons and look at the detail on, on the menu and the flowers and the hand painted. So many restaurants have such detail like woven into their fabric that you just have to appreciate that it's oh, more of an sure. art form to to run a restaurant or like a little like shop like Odolenghi's like who came up with that and who curated all those little trays and platters and and even just the desserts like how do you how do you put those all together every day and have people in another like, life and do something and, yeah. in that so Lisa I actually got married in a restaurant which one I well monsoon so they're not in business anymore, but they were down in the theater district, I think on around Duncan King in and okay. there. And it, they stepped down. But you're reminding me of this because you didn't have to do a single thing when you walked in. It was orange and they had elaborate, it was an Asian restaurant. So they had, you know, these huge flowers. Like it was gorgeous. The linens was beautiful. And so we had to do nothing decor wise, like nothing. And we had this experience of this menu. Oh, my God. It was amazing. And I actually had the ceremony there. And as oh, soon as, you know, you clap and you're signing, they handed out and little champagne glasses as, as we're yeah. signing and people are saying congratulate. Like, it was amazing. But, yeah, we, I even got married in a restaurant. Yeah. It's the experience. It's just that feeling. And I love that. Well, I think. We've, I've asked you all my questions. I don't know if you have any other like wise words you want to share with anyone listening. Just about any thoughts for 2023 or life in general. Well, you know, it's funny. So when we were talking, I think if I'd marry the two worlds, because I actually wrote about this in my book um, with food and kind of mom and mom guilt. And I've described that I grew up with this homemade, home-cooked, slow-cooked, hot meal on the table all the time. And of course, as I became a busy working mom and I love to cook, uh, that was a source of real guilt for me. And so, you know, and I know you've kind of asked this question before around nourishing your family. And I thought, God, even that word nourish is a loaded word because how do we reframe how we think about nourish? And so I wrote this this piece in the book and an article around muffin tin dinners. And when I think about my meals growing up were amazing, but they weren't always all that healthy. Like nary a green vegetable. I mean, corn was a vegetable. Thank you. Oh, mom, corn's not. Corn and potatoes are technically vegetables, but they're not. They're sugar. (laughs) And so when I talked about this concept of muffin tin dinner and meal guilt is like sometimes we have to cut ourselves some slack that it can actually be healthier and more fun to take a muffin tin and fill the little pots with healthy, fresh fruit and things out of the fridge, little cheese and crackeries and whatever, yeah. little vegetables and eat that way and have a fun experience as we've been talking about and cut yourself some stuff about needing to replicate this 1950s concept of having a hot meal on the table every day. And so I, you know, I would check, I would encourage your readers, if any of them are experiencing that feeling of guilt and around taking care and nourishing the family, that that I think we really have to redefine what that means. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, like you said, being with your family and having, sharing a meal is just as important as what you're eating too. So 
if you can make that muffin tin dinner and read books and be with your child, then you're not cooking and cleaning up after a giant lasagna bake or something. But oh, God, I do crave lasagna from time to time. But yes, <laughs> who doesn't, right? <laughs> I know. I was like, I think I need to make one this week to put me last week for a couple of days. But yeah, it's, I, I love it in muffin. Broccoli, that's all. No one wants to eat the broccoli, but I make them. (laughs) If you hide the broccoli in there, it's good. Although my son does like broccoli, but it's doused in lemon. So that's a trick that I think my mom taught us. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) he's actually requested, we're going to my mom's for dinner tonight. He's actually requested pasta with broccoli because my mom sautés the broccoli for a very long time. So it's kind of like a paste, like a really soft broccoli with onions and just the salt and the broccoli and it's just such a like an easy to eat yeah. delicious pasta and yeah my mom's like how about something else cuz she doesn't have broccoli and he's like no i want pasta with broccoli and she's like okay i have to go buy broccoli then and i'm like yep he's poor he's the boss so <laughs> oh, i love that he's requesting broccoli that's amazing yeah <laughs> that, that, like okay so yeah we try and feed him all the good stuff thank you for taking this time to chat if you have any other items we can put them in the show notes for our listeners we will link to your wonderful book and if people want to find you how can they find you tammyherman.com so you can connect with me there my spelling there uh, two e's two n's and herman and uh, yeah all my contact information is there so i'd love if anyone's looking for a keynote a workshop or for managers or for women i'd love to talk to them Sure. Okay. Well, I'll see you in July on your doorstep. I'll bring yes. peaches and yes, Thomas can grill up some halloumi peach skewers, which I'm like, no, I'm like, I wish it was July. <laughs> Me too, actually. Me too. <laughs> Anyhow, thank you for your time and we will see you around. Thanks. I had fun. Thanks, Lisa. I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of Culinary Chronicles Made with Love. Before you go, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app. For more information on the show, visit ladolching.com. And for more behind the scenes, follow me on Instagram at Lisa Sanguidolce.